0: What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the Rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts.
1: Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Today, our podcast is bi-coastal. Brian is in California. I am in New York. You probably are very well aware that the 2016 presidential election is less than a week away. I'm sure that's probably how you feel. Brian is the only person, I think, on the planet who's going to be sad—well, maybe a couple of cable networks as well—to see this election come to a close. Are you having withdrawals yet, Brian?
0: No, I'm just trying to enjoy it while it lasts. It's like uh, Burning Man for me, I think.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're such a Burning Man guy. By the way, I mean, there's been plenty to keep us busy when it comes to talking about all things political. So much has happened. I think we could change the lyrics of the September song to the November song. Brian, don't you?
0: Uh, I feel like this is your cue. Oh,
1: it's a long, long while from May to November.
0: I was right about this. I like
1: that. It was nice vibrato. Um, but so much has happened. I mean, it's really hard to keep all this straight, isn't it?
0: Well, There's a rich history of October surprises in American politics. You go back to 1968, there was a bombing halt in North Vietnam, which was supposed to help then Democratic candidate Hubert Humphrey. In 1972, Henry Kissinger said, peace is at hand also in Vietnam, and that supposedly helped Nixon. In 92, the former Reagan defense secretary was indicted which supposedly hurt George H.W. Bush. There are a lot of examples of this. How you
1: shall answer man. What happened in 1898 for crying out loud?
0: <laughs> what well, was a midterm election? Oh,
1: sorry. I'm sorry. To of rub- course it was. <laughs> 1896, scratch that.
0: <laughs> you want to talk about the McKinley race? No, thank but, you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's interesting about all of these No October surprises from Bush's DWI to the Bin Laden tape to Hurricane Sandy, just to deploy a few more, (laughs) is we're unsure about what the electoral impact is. It's very hard to prove causation. And so we really don't know, to use a phrase that's not often used. By the media, we really don't know what this means, and you know we're going to have to wait and see. But
1: somebody who probably has a good idea is Nate Silver. He has become almost a godlike figure for political junkies, hasn't he,
0: Brian? He is—he is a god among geeks, and and I include myself <laughs> proudly in that category. Uh, He's he's invented a whole new category really of journalism in which he uses analytics and statistical models to put polling into this big machine that he's created and hopefully push wisdom out that will give us a little bit of a better sense about where the race actually stands.
1: And you are so excited that he's our guest on today's podcast, aren't you, Brian?
0: I am all a flutter, even from 3,000 miles away.
1: Hi, Nate Silver. Welcome. It is so great to have you.
0: Cool.
2: Thank you for having me, Katie.
1: First, we have to start out with Comey Gate. Yeah. How big a bombshell or how big an impact do you think this is going to have on the election?
2: So it's a little hard to tell, which is not a very satisfying answer. Um, we began to detect, and other people who average polls began to detect, some momentum back toward Trump about a week ago, a week and a half ago or so, um, where he had had a very, very bad string of events with three debates that he was judged to have lost, um, the uh, the Access Hollywood tape I'm never quite sure how to refer to, the P word tape, um, and then all these accusations from women that he had sexually assaulted them. And it was about as bad um, a three weeks as a candidate can have. Um, I'm not saying any of it isn't his fault, right? But, you know, sometimes when you go from a terrible news cycle to a better news cycle, you begin to rebound just because your own base begins to come home to you. So we began to see Trump's numbers begin to go up, not by leaps and bounds, but a little bit, um, as he regained Republican votes. Um, And then you had Friday, when you had this FBI news, another story, I'm not quite sure how to characterize it exactly, but Comey, we'll call it. Um, And we've seen some further tightening since then, although it's not clear whether that was already baked in or because of of Comey. My impression is that... um, Trump had gained one or two points on Clinton over the past two weeks and maybe gained another point or so um, over the weekend.
0: And when you describe the tightening, Nate, just to be clear, are you talking about Hillary going down at all, or is it just Trump coming up with core Republican voters? That's
2: yeah, it's the latter. We know Trump's coming up. How much of that is Republicans versus independents? Probably a mix of both. But she's in national polls, she has stayed at about 46%. Um, and Trump's gone from 38, 39, 40, now 41 or so. So he's regained some ground on Clinton. Um, but, you know, 41 or 42 percent not enough to win. For that matter, 46 percent is not quite enough. So it's kind of like, you know, if she gets another point or two out of her base, gets up to 47 or 48, she gets to be in a pretty safe position. If she gets stuck, she's probably a favorite, but there'll be more suspense on Election Day. And if she declines, then things are really Competitive.
1: And there's, I guess, some speculation, isn't there, that, that there may be something brewing at the FBI, some kind of investigation involving Donald Trump, and the Democrats would like nothing more than have that get leaked to say, well, wait a second, they may be looking at these emails on Anthony Weiner's device. That sounded dirty. I'm so sorry. But they're also <laughs> looking at potential uh, bad behavior on the part of Donald Trump the Russian government, and the hacking of emails, right? Well, Trump creates this problem And by
0: Thursday, we should know. I mean, incidentally, we should point out to the listeners that we're recording this on Monday. We're in the time machine, and when people hear this on Thursday, you know, we could have, like, three or four front-page New York Times scandals between now and then. That's
2: true. I mean, it had been this kind of oddly anticlimactic finish before the Comey thing struck. You know, the debate's kind of ended early this year, and it's been a long campaign, so I think that's part of why— people jumped on it. They kind of proclaimed it to be a huge game changer um, before people had seen any evidence for really what it was or how it would move the polls. Well, Um, how
1: how responsible do you think the media is for genning this up? I know you tweeted, quote, the FBI story also broke at the exact time when the media was eager for a dramatic twist slash complication in the Clinton Coast narrative.
2: I mean, so to give a counter example, think about WikiLeaks and that's never really broken through and been the main story in part because that those um, we're all coming out at the time that Trump was making a lot of news. And by the time that Trump quieted down, WikiLeaks was old news. So I do think the timing matters a lot. I know and I Julian
1: guess, Assange was probably so pissed I know. off, Nate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and if he had released those in the primaries where you'd have more um, intra-party warfare, then that might have been more devastating for Clinton. Um, but, you know, I, I do have the sense that, um, look, the media has incentives to to play up how competitive the race is. Trump had had a very difficult few weeks. They were working the refs a lot. And I I do think that, um, and by the way, it's also, though, that you had this very exciting, devastating, impactful bulletin, right? And then it didn't really live up to the billing. And so people are are hesitant to adjust for that sometimes. But it is interesting that Clinton decided, I'm not going to go after the media. I'm going to go after Comey himself. If it were a Republican, they would say, oh my God, you may guys made something out of nothing and you got this headline wrong and this and that. But Democrats don't attack the media in the way that Republicans often very effectively do to rile up their base.
1: But Brian and Nate, I mean, don't you think it's so strange that there will not be any kind of resolution to this whole quote-unquote crisis before the election? I mean, it's it's yeah. what? There, there are hundreds of thousands of emails or thousands anyway. I guess 650,000 in all, but a lot of those are Anthony Weiner's emails, right, Brian? So. What kind of impact, I'm, I'm interested from you, Brian, and Nate, does this kind of dark cloud have hanging over Hillary Clinton's head, or are people going to dismiss it and say it's a much ado about nothing?
2: Well, we'll see. I mean, there's been some reporting that the FBI would try to make some characterization, like, oh, there's something new here or there's not, right? What's too late for that, though? Maybe Thursday or Friday they can't say that Monday morning or Tuesday morning, right, while people are... Our voting—how's that affect things potentially? And by the way, um, you know, a lot of people in the country have voted. About a quarter of the vote, roughly, is in in swing states with early voting. There are states like Nevada uh, where substantial numbers—maybe more than half—the vote will be done before election day, and so you know, the election's already underway now.
1: I, I've heard that that is good news for Hillary Clinton in terms of the way early voting is shaping up in states like Florida. What are you sort of postulating from those early voting returns?
2: So it's a little tricky because Democrats usually put a bigger emphasis on early voting. But the two states where her numbers look good are North Carolina and Nevada. Um, North Carolina registration is by party ID and in Nevada, for that matter. Um, And so you see not necessarily the African-American turnout that Obama had, but you see big support from highly educated white people, which in North Carolina you actually have quite a few of in the Research Triangle and Charlotte and whatnot. And they're turning out, um, we presume, for Clinton – In big numbers. Um, And Nevada is a case where it's a low turnout state. If you have a ground game, the other candidate does not, then that's a big advantage.
0: When we should say Republicans have a history of showing up in much larger numbers on election day and making up deficits uh, with early voting. So it's not clear yet that there isn't going to be a huge Trump turnout on November 8th.
2: Right. Um, But it it does mean that if you hear about a low turnout, you should think Democrats want a higher turnout, right? It could be that if you have a lower turnout in some states on November 8th, then you know that Democrats have already banked a lot of votes, therefore they are a higher proportion of the vote. And so, you know, which candidate wants to hear reports of higher turnouts a little bit unclear this time around?
1: Can I ask a stupid question? When it comes to early voting, they don't get counted until after Election Day, do they? So
2: what many states do is they'll report statistics by party ID. So we know, for example, that um, something like 40,000 more Democrats and Republicans have voted as of Sunday in Clark County, Nevada. That number might be wrong. But somewhere yeah. in that ballpark, right? Um,
0: By the can't... way, people in Nevada get very pissed when you call it Nevada. Well, he said,
1: well, "Well, Nate I've said Nevada and at first. And yeah. then I was like, you go, Nate. And because Missouri Donald, and
0: Missouri. But... Donald
1: Trump says Nevada.
0: Uh, but so <laughs> The only possible thing I could teach you today that you don't already know, but half my family's from there, and they hate Nevada. I don't know why.
1: Let's call the whole thing off, Brian you know what I found? You out say is that Nevada and I say Nevada. The word
2: for a person from Utah is a Utahan, not a Utahan.
1: Oh, I didn't know either. People but get upset if bo- you – They both sound strange. A Utahan?
2: A Utahan. Oh, so two syllables.
1: See, I learned something today
0: from Nate. Did you know that, Brian? I really Brian? got us off on – I did not. I got us off on a hill <laughs> of a tangent,
1: though. Let's talk about undecided voters, because Brian and I talk about this, and we're like, who the hell is undecided at this point in this crazy election? Could there really be people who are saying, "Mm, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, which one?
0: (laughs) I love them both.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right? Or or are (laughs) –
0: Or are the undecideds really choosing between Trump or a third party or Hillary Clinton or staying at home? I mean, what do we know about the pool of undecideds?
2: So we know that there are people who mostly like President Obama but think the country is on the wrong track, which is a weird set of circumstances. We know there are people who mostly dislike both candidates. There aren't a lot of people who love their choices. Um, To me, these feel like people who might wind up staying at home and and sitting out. Um, the only silver lining to the Clinton campaign from Gate is that I'm sure they're pretty happy that they, people feel the election is competitive enough that their vote matters, because you always worry about complacency in an election where there's a lot of uncertainty and there are a lot of undecideds. That's how Trump wins, right? If Trump's undecideds come out and Clinton's don't, um, then he has a path.
1: It's so much about turnout, isn't it?
2: Um, Some states, it matters more than others. I mean, if you have early voting in a state, in some ways there's more opportunity to take advantage of it. The ground game probably matters more in a state like Pennsylvania, where you know who your voters are, and it's just a matter of getting them to turn out, than in a state like New Hampshire, where there are a lot of swing voters. That's a persuasion state. Pennsylvania, North Carolina, these are states where Ohio, these are states where it's a turnout state.
1: Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about what makes Nate Silver tick, or analyze, <laughs> or I don't know what it is you do exactly. What would you say, <laughs>
2: curate? I mean, yeah, I don't know. Report, I guess, in a weird way. But And,
1: and also, I want to talk to you more about polling mm-hmm. and how reliable it is and when it's been wrong and if it could be wrong, this go-round. Cool, thank so you. So we'll do that right after this. This season, Crate & Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most? There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other, Crate and Barrel.
3: When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout
1: so we asked and you all very nicely answered We asked how you're coping in these final days of this insane election cycle. Hi, Katie. This is Shelly Davies. How I've been managing to cope through this election season is to use them as teachable moments for my 13-year-old and my 10-year-old. There's plenty of good examples and bad examples to choose from. And with my 13-year-old in particular, we now have a new statement if behavior is going badly, we say, don't be a Donald Trump, and it usually stops them in his tracks.
0: Thanks for your show. Bye.
1: Wow. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a sad commentary, isn't it, Brian?
0: It is. It is. And we, we hope that some uh, Trump supporters will call in and, and let us know how they're teaching their children as well.
1: Meanwhile, we have another caller. Hello. My name is Madeline Van Cain, and you asked, about coping mechanisms for surviving the election. What I do is write political limericks. Uh, Here's a sample. It's called Going to Town About the Election. This election is nearing its end. None too soon. I've gone plumb round the bend. I can't handle more jive. My mind's taken a dive. It needs Hillary's village to mend. Thanks very much. I've been enjoying your podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. Quite a poet. I like limericks. That's very funny. And that's actually a nice way to let off steam. Brian, what have you been doing? Have you been doing anything to kind of disconnect from all of this stuff?
0: Uh, I listen to podcasts about the election to disconnect (laughs) from the election generally.
1: Nate Silver, it's always great to talk to you. Do you feel like a rock star? Because all my friends say, Nate Silver says, well, I read Nate <laughs> Silver. I mean, they drop your name like it's going out of style. Just Is that to, funny to you?
2: It's weird. I mean, it, we're, you know, it happens once every four years, then a very small spike around the midterm.
1: Before we talk more about this cr- crazy campaign, by the way, do you feel like that's all you can talk about? And do you wonder what you're going to start talking about on November 9th? I mean... I found some frequent flyer award tickets to Italy and Are January. you going to go away? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean,
2: not right away because there's a lot of risk of there being aftermath. I mean, just think of all the scenarios between recounts. And by the way, the Senate's really close now, too. And so you could have a recount in a Senate race that matters between, I hope not, but civil unrest between an electoral college popular vote split, which is a likelier outcome than people might think. Um, so, you know, and just if Trump loses— does he concede if Trump wins? How's the country react? I mean, yeah, but no. I mean, <laughs> it I makes out,
1: me exhausted just thinking about it. Nate. I went out to
2: dinner, and the other table near me was talking about how Maine and Nebraska—they're not my friends, right—split their votes by congressional district, and so people are. It's very hard to get away from the election. Um,
1: Let's talk, let's talk about you, Nate, shall we? You grew up in Michigan. Mm-hmm. What's a nice boy like you doing in a crazy business like this, Nate? So it was
2: kind of <laughs> unintentional. You know, I covered um, – so I went to college, got a degree in economics. From um, the University of Chicago. University of Chicago. Got a consulting Go job. Go Cubs. Go Cubs. <laughs> I was uh, – got a consulting job, got bored, started working on the side to develop a model to forecast how baseball players would do and wrote about baseball for several years. Um, and then figured if people are spending all this time doing analytics on baseball, this was the time when shortly after Moneyball came out, why not take the same approach toward politics? And this was in early or late 2007. Um, so you had a spectacular Democratic primary, a very interesting for that matter, Republican primary, and then a historic general election. Um so it was kind of being in the right place at the right time. But it's so
1: interesting to me because you grew up with your two passions, math and sports, right? Yeah, yeah. So so how did that morph into politics?
2: I mean, just because my frustration, because you'd seen progress in the way sports was covered, became more analytical, a little smarter. Um, and, you know, um, I'm not sure that's true of political coverage. I mean, I very much value good reporting, but, um, but the average pundit is not particularly – data-driven, doesn't know that much about polling, makes a lot of assertions without evidence. Um, in 2008, for example, people were like, well, Hillary is going to win for sure, and Obama, you know, too far behind. Of course, that was before Iowa, and Iowa um, is often more predictive of the results than than national polls early in a primary race. So it was more out of frustration where it's like, I have to build this myself, I guess.
1: Nate, where do you go from here? Are you kind gonna- of continue to be with 538 I know you're working with ESPN and ABC now uh, you deep you kind of threw the New York Times over the, <laughs> you, <laughs> you dump the New York Times which is well uh, who does that Nate we're only we're only two
2: blocks in a building they might be listening in on this yeah. but um, no look 530 is a whole wonderful unbiased website then we have 30 or 35 journalists working for us and we cover economics sports politics that aren't just elections and so we have a robust site. I know people love our election coverage, um, but we are looking forward to getting a little bit of rest um, to letting our non-politics coverage shine, but also, there are going to be consequences to this election, win or lose. They're going to persist for for many years. If you cover politics for living, it's good in that sense that you're not going to be bored anytime soon, um, but it's going to take a lot of time, again, regardless of who wins, to to unwrap everything that's that's happened.
1: You wrote a piece actually about why you got Trump so wrong. Yeah, till
2: November or December, till about a year ago, um, we were quite skeptical.
1: And why was that? I mean, did you just not see it coming, or? Well, you know, there aren't a
2: lot of historical examples of primaries or seventeen-way primaries. But look, Trump did violate um, a lot of history where there's never been anything remotely like this, at least in my lifetime. I'm 38. And if you're making forecasts, you're kind of trying to make extrapolations from history. So when something unusual happens, um, you're liable to get that wrong. The question is still, if you kind of replayed that race 100 times, how often would Trump win? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he proved that there's a very different Republican electorate than a lot of us thought. On the other hand, um, he had the element of surprise where there hadn't been a candidate like him. Um, where he committed so much attention and kind of rode the momentum from the polls and made sure that he took up so much oxygen that you could never have. I remember the day when, um, kind of brilliant tactically, right, Rubio had had some debate. I forgot which one. There were so many. Some debate where Rubio had done really well, was getting very good buzz, um, and was kind of catching up to Trump. And then that's when Trump unveiled... Chris Christie's endorsement. Everyone dropped what they were doing and went and covered Trump. And of course, it was very theatrical. They had like flown Chris Christie out somewhere surreptitiously. Um, so his sense of theater and his sense of kind of how do you cater to the 20 or 30 percent of people who are really interested in your product? I mean, that was a very turned out to be a very helpful instinct for him. But it, you know, it does go against a lot of history. I guess what I'm saying is that at some point, um, the polls override. History At some point when you get into November or December and Trump has a big lead nationally and a lead in most swing states, um, or most early primary states, I should say, then I think we're a little slow on the draw there, certainly.
0: Well, and it's interesting. You you assign very specific odds or percentages to Trump's chances. You put his chances at 2% in August, 7% in December uh, of 2015. I, I think people would be really interested in kind of peeling back the curtain and and learning a little bit more about how the 538 machine works and, and why the process for assigning odds to Trump was so different from what you're doing right now. Well,
2: I, I think people lose the context. And, you know, I kind of think in – percentages, right? You know, kind of if someone's like, what's the chance you want to get Italian food <laughs> tonight or whatever, right? Um, I'd say 100%. But when people eight. put numbers, often, <laughs> probably, maybe, I don't know. Um, when um, when we put numbers on things, people assume that means it's a model, and usually it is, right? When we say that Clinton has a 74% chance of winning, that comes from an algorithm, a program where you just kind of feed data in. Obviously, there's a lot of thought in how the is put together. It's not like it has a mind of its own. Um, but, you know, that is the output from a computer program. The Trump forecast, were were not. And I think in the future, to be honest, we're going to avoid putting numbers on things unless it actually is the output of a model or a forecast.
1: And when you talk about feeding in the data, you're talking about aggregating a whole bunch of polls?
2: Mm-hmm. Basically, every poll is incorporated in the model in, in some way, right? Um, and it's all automated. I mean, someone has to manually enter in the polls, but... Whenever a poll is entered into our database, it triggers a run of the forecast that occurs on a server. And so we're not intervening in the program once it's built. Um, there can be bugs, then we fix the bugs, to be honest. But, um, but that's why I like how oh, they say, oh, Nate's giving Clinton an 80% chance now in Pennsylvania. It's like, not really. I mean, it's like a computer program that my colleagues and I designed has given her that chance based on on polls that are kind of automatically fit into the model.
1: And then I guess that's a perfect segue, though, Brian, to the question about how how accurate are these polls? You know, there's been so much speculation about polling today and about are they really uh, legitimate reflections of the electorate? Uh, you know, I know the response rate for pollsters has gone down. Now there's online polling. There's telephone polling Um there, there's a lot of talk about a secret Trump vote that's not being reflected honestly in the polls because people are embarrassed to say they're supporting Donald Trump. So where do you stand on all of this? And does it worry you that the data you're using to come up with these percentages just isn't right?
2: So the percentages account for the possibility the polls could be systematically wrong. So again, we're recording this on on Monday. As of Monday, Clinton is ahead in the polls in more than enough states, right? She's ahead in the polls in Pennsylvania and North Carolina Nevada, New Hampshire, more than enough states, right? However, um, there's a chance the polls could be wrong. And we say there's a 25% chance that Trump could win. Some of that is the possibility of another October surprise or November surprise it would be at this point. Um, But it's also that the polls could turn out to be relatively far off. I mean, to have a four or five point polling miss is on the high side, but not unheard of. in the Brexit vote, You had about a four-point miss in 2000. People forget this one. Bush was favored by three or four points in the popular vote and lost the popular vote. But, you know, we actually have the model that gives the best chance to Trump. There are other people who have models that process the data in a different way that literally give him a 1% chance when we say it's a 25% chance. And we think those models do not account sufficiently for the possibility of of a systematic error in the
0: polling. And just to break this down a little bit further, when you build your model, do you assign greater weight or influence to certain polls that you think are better than others? Because I know a lot of campaign professionals look at some public polls and say, you know, those are well done, and others that they think are just crap. Brian! (laughs) um,
2: You know, we do weight polls based on a formula that looks at how accurate they've been historically, plus um, a couple of methodological Benchmark. So one is, are you a live caller poll that calls cell phones as well as landlines? It's still kind of the gold industry standard practice. Um, and number two is, are you part of um, disclosure and transparency initiatives, where the pollster is revealing substantial amounts of information about how the poll was conducted, who was called, everything else, right? On the other hand, you know, we want to try and use all the data that we can, Um, as response rates to telephone polls decrease, online polls people actually respond to more. Um, The problem is that it's hard to get a random sample online. So frankly, we're happy, I think, that we have the mix we have right now of telephone polls and online polls. They don't always tell the same story. The online polls have the race a little closer. Um, They also show a steadier race, though. They tend not to show the swings, that telephone poles do. And, and why different.
1: is that? And why is it harder to get a random sampling online? I don't understand that.
2: Because I can call you. So it used to be, probably not anymore, right? Um, but it used to be I could call you or your family by randomly dialing a number on the phone, right? And I know that, let's say, 772-436, and then dial the last four, we know that those prefixes or suffixes work, right?
1: Right. That's how I used to make crank calls in junior high.
2: Yeah, right? Yeah. It's the same principle. <laughs> yeah. um, but now... Um, that's become much harder. People, number one, don't answer their phone. Number two, people don't necessarily have landlines to begin with. If they have cell phones. The phone number, you know, I still have a, a Chicago area cell phone number. I've lived in New York for, for seven years right. now. Right. Oh,
1: that's interesting. And yeah. people just
2: find ways around that. But, you know, but so it's becoming hard to it's get someone impediment. randomly. But still, it's easier, at least in theory, um, than, I mean, how can I randomly ping someone online? Do I have their email? I mean, maybe if I'm the NSA Or something I do, right? Right. Um, You know, some service will try and interrupt you. Instead of showing you an ad, they'll show you a poll. But if you're perturbed by that interruption, you might just click on whatever uh, candidate's name you see first to get through.
1: And it's interesting. I get those sometimes, Brian. Do you? When you're reading an article or you're online, I get these polls. But I always think they're crazy spam. And if I open it, someone will infect my whole Gmail account. Or Yahoo, Yeah, account, I, I actually do the opposite. I don't, yeah. res,
0: I don't respond to online polls, but I do sometimes respond to telephone pollsters.
1: But I don't know. They scare me. The online polls scare me because you never know if they're legitimate or not and what they're going to do to your... And, okay. and
2: there are legitimate you know. And the key differentiator is, is a poll trying to get a random and representative sample of the electorate? Um, you can try and do that and still screw it up, but are you trying to do it versus a poll, which is Purely voluntary, right? The, the Drudge Report quote-unquote poll or the local news station that has a quote-unquote poll that people can just click from anywhere as many times as they want, those don't tell you anything.
0: Got it. So the polls that Trump cites that showed him winning all three debates, we should say, <laughs> yeah, we're, were not scientific no, and, polls. And I think a lot of people misunderstood that.
2: Well, I think he's deliberately obscuring the boundary. Now that the race has tightened a little bit, all of a sudden he cites these polls that he likes, right? He's very opportunistic. Although, to be honest, lots of people are opportunistic about, oh, all of a sudden, you know, um, I mean, I work partly with ABC News, I'm a little biased here, but the ABC News Washington Post poll is a very good poll, um, good track record, when it went from showing a 12-point lead for Clinton to a one-point lead um Democrats all of a sudden found a lot of methodological flaws they hadn't thought about before. But that that
1: does seem kind of like a huge, huge uh, drop in her support. Um, Were you you surprised by that? That's
2: why you take an average, right? I mean, the key is you never take any one poll to be the gospel truth, right? You treat every individual polling result skeptically. And yet, lo and behold, if you're able to aggregate um, several dozen polls together, you can get a pretty accurate reading usually on the race.
0: And what about, as Katie mentioned, this theory that has a lot of sway among Trump supporters that there are missing millions of white voters whom Trump is going to energize and bring out to the polls?
2: I mean, look, on the one hand, we say there is a possibility of an error in either direction. Um, It could also be that um, polls are under-sampling Latino voters, for example, especially those that don't speak English. But I would say a couple of things about Trump supporters. Number one... um, you didn't see this happen in the primaries where Trump was underestimated by people like me, but not based on the polls. The polls actually did a very good job of pegging Trump's vote. In fact, there were some states like Iowa where he was overestimated by the polls. Um, and number two, you know, the notion of a shy Trump voter. I'm not sure how many Trump voters you've met, but shy is not the first word that would
1: come to mind. Um, not so much shy, but I think <laughs> there are – there there at least people that I have met who I think – are not outwardly supporting him, but would tell you privately or tell some people privately that they were supporting him?
0: I don't know any of these secret Trump supporters. (laughs) The Trump supporters I know are pretty loud and proud about it. But I keep hearing these stories that, you know, there are Trump supporters who don't want to tell their liberal friends at dinner parties and don't want to incite a big argument, and so they don't mention it. But uh, we'll see on election day.
1: And you know. uh, Why is Donald Trump doing so well among non-college-educated white voters? Is there anything in your sort of data other than the fact that his message is resonating and that there are a lot of people in this country who feel marginalized and disenfranchised?
2: I mean, so to put a little perspective on this, you know, Trump isn't doing that well except relatively speaking, right? He only has, even with his surge lately, only has about 41 42% Forty-two percent of the vote. That's pretty low. Mitt Romney got forty-seven percent. Um, but you know, a bad,
1: number for, a bad number for Mitt
2: Romney. A bad number for Mitt Romney. To be perfectly honest, I think the data suggests that um, racial anxiety is strongly correlated with some types of Trump supporters. That's part of it. Um, part of it also is that um, that he gets a lot of loyal Republicans. Not all of them, but some of them to turn out for him. Um, I think part of it is that there's a certain anti-elitism and Trump has become a champion kind of culturally of the working class. But I think it has more to do with culture than economics per se. And this is a big debate in the literature. Um, and culture and race and economics and education, these are all blurry boundaries between those categories. Um, but certainly in the primaries the states where Trump did well are places where you historically had higher rates of anti-black racism.
0: Well, and in the general election, isn't hyper-partisanship a huge factor? Yeah. You know, in 1984, Ronald Reagan got about a quarter of the Democratic vote. It's hard to imagine anything like that happening today because we all live in our little bubbles and we get information that reinforces what we already believe. And so if you're a Republican, I think you, you kind of think Hillary's worse, as bad as Trump is yep. on some stuff... You probably think, you know, based on everything you're hearing, Hillary's worse. I mean,
2: we all get so used to talking about Trump, but um, most Hillary voters are voting for Clinton because of Clinton, and most Trump voters are voting for Trump because of Clinton. So Clinton's actually the kind of key um, figure in the race in in some ways. I I hate to say it, but in some ways, the kind of very ill-put comment Clinton made about deplorables – was kind of getting in the direction of of how you might go about dividing his support up. If you have forty percent, you know, maybe fifteen or twenty percent of that is from people who um, who don't like people who don't look like them. But there is a lot too that is for other reasons and for um, for anti-Clinton for partisan reasons. There are people who think he f- is a breath of fresh air. And but as so, you
1: said, I mean, all these things are very hard to quantify. I imagine Nate. I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. There's, um, you know. Probably Venn diagrams all over the place that have people who fall into maybe no, both categories, ap- right? Absolutely. I mean, and you
2: and you know, I mean, I think we're learning. One of the big mistakes I think people made this year was underestimating the kind of complexity of the Republican electorate, where people said, "Well, um, you have the establishment lane and the evangelical lane and the libertarian lane and whatever else," right? And in fact, those voters are all kind of all over the place, right? And
1: they all have a degree of being fed up with Washington and frustrated. So you know,
2: I mean, you know, certainly the mood that Trump invokes, and we are getting a little subjective here, but you know, the convention speech that he delivered um, was a dark, even angry speech
1: at times. I'd like to go to go out on a limb, if you could, Nate. Um, If the election were held tomorrow instead of a week from tomorrow, what do you think is going to happen?
2: I mean, this is why we put things in probabilities, right? Because on, on the one hand, it's not so close, I don't think. And again, we're taking this a couple days in advance. It's not so close that you can say, we're not sure what the polls say. The polls say, Clinton. Now, it's my job to try and figure out how likely the polls are to be accurate or not. And we think um, because the number of undecided voters, the number of swing states in play, the disagreement in the polls, the risk of an error is higher than usual in either direction, frankly. You know, but look, Clinton's, at even money, you'd be very happy to take Clinton. We can start to debate what odds you would need to take Trump.
0: And you're saying this is somebody who made his money as an online poker player for a couple of years, I read.
2: Yeah, so you're always trying to figure out when's an advantageous situation. I mean, the difference between this and 2012, in 2012, we spent a lot of time with the same model, um, saying that people are calling this race a toss-up, and no, it's not true, Obama— has been favored all year long in polls of key swing states, right? This time around, people are like are in in disbelief that Trump has a shot. But you know, there are maybe enough people in the country for Trump to win narrowly, and that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a narrow Clinton win, a big Clinton win, or just maybe a narrow narrow Trump win um, involving probably him overperforming in the Midwest, maybe even losing the popular vote nationwide. Um, But, you know, Clinton's doing really well in California and Texas, for example, relative to Obama. Not two states that are helpful with the electoral vote very much. If you gain a bunch of votes in California and win by 30 instead of 20, well, that boosts your popular vote margin by about a point nationally, but doesn't help you in the Electoral College at all.
1: And any other states that we should be paying particularly close attention to that you think will be meaningful on election night?
2: I mean, there are some fun ones. So, Utah is a state where you have a third party candidate named Evan McMullen, who's popular with the Mormon community there, which is about two thirds of the electorate. Um, and so he's giving Trump a race. Um, you know, Arizona is a state where if Clinton's having a pretty good night, um, that could be a benchmark for it that becomes a really good night for her and becomes something people will think of as a landslide mandate type outcome. That, along with North Carolina, are the two states Obama lost in 2012, which she is most likely to flip. Um, Conversely, I mean, you can have states go in either direction. So Trump is probably a favorite in Iowa, for example. Um, And so you could have Iowa go red, Arizona go blue, Texas not go blue, but become closer, right? And Utah, probably not go blue, but maybe go whatever color Evan McMillan is, purple on our chart. Um, And so that would be an indication of of how the electorate has begun to change. We had a very similar map, 2000, 2004, 8, 12. Um, This year, you begin to see some new threads come into play. It won't all resolve itself this year, um, but maybe we are talking about the the four corner states in the future where Arizona and Utah are more competitive. um, And maybe we're talking about how Iowa is like Missouri, a formerly swing state that's now a red state, for example.
0: And aren't we really talking about the decline of democratic support among the white working class? It already happened in West Virginia. It's happening now in Iowa and Ohio, but the rise of democratic support among the professional college-educated class in places like Arizona and North Carolina.
2: Yeah, and you see migration patterns. I mean, I think Clinton's not going to get to a winning margin in Georgia this year, um, although it could be close. but with four more years of tech sector growth in the Atlanta area and growth of the African-American population there and college students, then Georgia could go the way of, of North Carolina, for example.
1: And the immigration to cities, <clears> right, by young And the immigration to people. cities.
2: Um, but again, this doesn't play purely into Democrats' hands, that it does tend to even out. And yeah, you're going to see um, maybe the axis of competition shift from the Midwest, where the Midwest will go increasingly red. Um, to the South, both the Southwest and the Southeast.
1: Well, I think the fascinating thing to cover, and for you, obviously, Nate, to pay attention to is the future of the Republican Party. Yeah. I can't help but think that it's going to turn into kind of a two-class, two-party system with more educated elites trending towards the Democratic Party and less educated people becoming Republicans. Is that a fair assessment, you guys? I mean, clearly these things have the opportunity to be self-reinforcing,
2: where the people who were fed up with the Republican Party this year might not come back anytime soon, especially if it seems like more of a Trumpian party. And if there's a Trumpian plurality or majority, then even without Trump, then it can still control many candidates' destiny. I mean, one thing we definitely learned is that there isn't that much of a market for Marco Rubio type of conservatism where it's kind of um, well-presented, but ultimately pretty conservative and kind of Reagan, like Reagan reinvented, right? Because the market for that used to be among voters in the suburbs, upper middle class usually, and that group has gone more and more democratic. So that's been draining away the potential number of votes that Republicans might might win. So Um, what
1: brand of republicanism works?
2: Well, we don't know. I mean, Trump, who I think wasn't really a Republican, but kind of reinvented the party in his image— beat out 16 other versions of Republicanism. The one complicating thing, um, so we don't don't get too fixated on this neat narrative about Trump hijacking the party, is that you did have um, very, very few upsets in Republican Senate and gubernatorial primaries. The establishment won plenty of those, and the GOP has a fairly strong set of candidates which may mitigate their losses um, in the Senate, for example. Um, so maybe there's some hope that Trump was truly one of a kind and that he'll go away quietly. Because um, in some ways, it's if – in some ways, if Trump wins, <laughs> um, unless he has a great first term, in some ways, if Trump wins, it's more problematic for the GOP.
0: And I know we have to go soon, Nate, but but briefly before we do, uh, what's your assessment on House and Senate control at this point?
2: So the Senate is – incredible in that we have um, six races that are really as close to toss-ups as you can get. Um, It looks like Democrats might have a slight edge in Pennsylvania, but New Hampshire, Nevada, Missouri, Indiana, North Carolina um, are very close. And we don't say things are too close to call just to stay out of trouble. I mean, you you can really find lots of polls lining up on either side of those races.
0: But the history of this is that the key Senate races tend to break one way or the other depending on the presidential action. Well, and
2: it looked like they were breaking it <laughs> toward Democrats. And now one week later, I mean, we have Democrats as of Monday as about a 65% chance to take the Senate. But that was declining a little bit um, as we began to see some Republicans come home, I think.
1: And finally, what about Gary Johnson and Jill Stein? Are they just Non-factors, I mean, they do, even though their percentages have declined, Gary Johnson's in particular, since uh, the all-time high at one point, um, that's still, I mean, do you think it's siphoning votes away from Hillary Clinton or from Donald Trump? And is it enough to make a difference in the outcome?
2: I mean, what you've seen is that when the candidates have surged and have good moments, right, Clinton after the debates or her convention, um, Trump more recently – they begin to pull voters away from the third-party candidate, and once those voters go to a major party candidate, they don't go back because they don't want to wind up wasting their vote. Um, and so that vote for Johnson's decline from about 10% to 5%, it's dying from about 4% to 1% or 2%. Um, there's not much that much lower they would go, but, but sure. I mean, if you have Johnson with 5% of the vote um, and the margin in Pennsylvania is five points, then... Those are voters who potentially could make a difference at the end.
0: Is there any statistical analysis that would tell us if your most likely scenario happens, a Clinton win, but a Republican House, maybe a Democratic Senate, maybe a Republican Senate, whether we'll just get more gridlock or that something different will actually occur?
2: I mean, gridlock seems like a very safe bet, (laughs) Um, in part because I don't think you're going to have a Democratic— House. Um, I think Clinton would have had need to have had a wind at her back in the last week of the campaign instead of running into the wind a little bit. If you have Trump, you're going to have not the traditional, uh, necessarily well trained bureaucrats and cabinet and everything else. I mean, so, you know, this is why I say, um, and again, you would much rather win the presidency than lose it, but whoever wins the presidency is going to probably face a difficult. First two years and difficult midterm in 2018.
1: Nate Silver, Nate, thank you. Thank you,
2: Katie. Thank you, Brian, too.
0: Thank you. So we want to thank, as always, Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering and mixing it. Thanks to Mark Phillips for our fantastic theme music.
1: We'll be back next week with a very special election episode, really a post-election episode. And we want to hear from you once it's over. What will you be doing to fill up all the time you've spent obsessively following this election? Leave us a message. Brian will be manning the phones. I'm kidding about that. 929 929- two two four four six three seven and we really look forward to hearing what you have to say. And remember, beside our voicemail line, you can also email us at comments at curricpodcast.com or even better Rate and review us on iTunes. We really appreciate when you do that because it helps us make a better show for all of you and it also makes more people subscribe, which is something we like. So don't forget, you should subscribe as well. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.
3: There is a creature. That stalks your inbox while you sleep? The Ear Wolf. Once every fortnight, this lupine beast sneaks across the internet carrying only a newsletter featuring exciting podcast highlights, fan art, live tour dates, in studio photos of stars like Mel Brooks and Susan Sarandon, and sneak peeks of podcasts yet to come. If you want these valuable treasures, all you have to do is invite it in by going to Earwolf.com and subscribing to its email newsletter, and then wait for the Earwolf to visit.
0: (laughs) So, impeachment? I mean, holy s***,
2: right? If you want to know WTF is going on right now, well, I've got just the podcast for you. I'm Hayes Brown, a reporter and editor at BuzzFeed News and the host of Impeachment Today, a daily podcast produced in partnership with iHeartRadio. In just 10 to 15 minutes every weekday morning, I'll catch you up on what just happened with the help of other BuzzFeed News reporters to figure out what it all means and give you the context you
0: need to understand WTF is really going on right now. Listen and subscribe to Impeachment Today on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you
2: listen.